0: Hi guys, welcome back. Today I had on Andy Nairn, a strategist and author of the book Go Luck Yourself. Me and Andy had a really great chat about luck um, being a strategist in his career. Um, There's some really good um, sort of tidbits and stories and stuff from Andy's book, um, as well as a really nice sort of large discussion about luck and its role in business and why businesses and advertising agencies and clients overlook luck um, and the role that it can play in creating um, better work. So, without further ado, here is Andy. Mayer. Enjoy. Um, good, um, good afternoon, afternoon, Andy. Andy. Uh, uh, how are today? you doing
1: today? I'm really good. Thanks. Thanks very much for having me on this. It's uh, it's nice to be speaking to a uh, uh, a fellow Scot.
0: Yeah, I yeah. I think you might be the second the second Scots person I've spoke to, um, on this. So always good to you know have some, some Scottish voices on. Um, why don't you take me through your career path? Um, what led you into advertising and what got you to
1: where you are today? So um, I, I grew up in the borders. Um, and funnily enough, I did law at university. So I had no sort of intention or ambition to do advertising. I'd never really given that in any um, manner of thinking uh, that had not crossed my sort of radar but I did law because I didn't know one I didn't know what I wanted to do so I thought that was quite a sort of a broad course that you know it's a sort of thing that you can't go too far wrong with um, you know people seem to look up to it as being a good degree so I did that and then um pretty early on I really I really loved law but I sort of quite early on in my degree sort of realized I didn't want to be a lawyer um, I sort of felt that that was going to be a bit sort of corporate and um, wouldn't be quite right for me. Um, but I loved the sort of problem-solving aspect of it. Um, you know, sort of taking all the facts and and um, you know uh, speaking to a client and the sort of uh, learning what the sort of trying to construct a narrative. I guess the story, um, the best possible story for a client. Um, and so I thought I might want to do something with that. And and actually a tutor. Uh, rather brilliantly kind of said to me well if you like that sort of thing but you don't like the corporate aspect of it have you thought about advertising and he sort of um, steered me in that direction. Um,
0: Nice yeah I mean I think that's what a lot of people um, are like with law like it's it's quite a good uh, general degree but the sort of corporate side of it can be a bit you know I don't know it, to me anyway it seems a bit boring certainly compared to advertising which is a lot more interesting. Interesting.
1: Yeah yeah. I'm certainly very glad he um, did it funnily enough he, he turned out then afterwards <clears throat> so this is a bit of a, a deviation but he he's a guy called Alexander McCall Smith and he's he sort of subsequently then became this international best selling author um, mm-hmm. where, you know he sold tens of millions of copies of this sort of uh, women, ladies detective agency um, sort of of Botswana and um, so I think he sort of took I like to think that he sort of took his advice to me and then did it himself, but with much greater success. You know, he sort of thought that he <laughs> fancied a, a more creative uh, career as well, and then he's gone on to the, be this of absolute mega star of the publishing world. Um, uh, but no, yeah, So then I sort of I did um, I did that, and I, I didn't think much, You know, I didn't really do anything immediately about that, as other than sort of log it. I was like, oh, that's quite interesting. And then I did what I think um, sounds like you're doing. I did a a year's sort of uh, course at Strathclyde sort of to you know, just like a, for people who hadn't done advertising uh, before. Um, so I thought that would be quite good to get my head around it, whether I wanted to, you know, before I dived in. And then I just did what everyone has to do and apply to loads of agencies, get loads of knockbacks. and But I did get into uh, Abbott Mead Vickers, um, which uh, is obviously now if not the biggest agency it's probably been either the biggest or the second biggest for the last 25 odd years but and back then it was it was not quite as big as that but it was still a very good place to get in for your first job so I was um I was really lucky there too.
0: Yeah I mean that's a a great place to start off your career was it that was it like a big agency compared to others back then or was it still pretty small like what what did it feel like when you first went down there obviously with no experience of of what an agency's like? like
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I had literally no experience. It was about, um, I think it was number 10. Um, so, you know, it was, it was pretty big, but it, it wasn't an absolute giant. A couple of years later, it won the BT account, and then overnight it became the biggest agency um, in Britain, which it hung on to, I think, for the next 25 odd years. Um, but I, when, I, when I applied, I applied uh, as an account person, you know, account man, I guess, account manager. Um, just because I hadn't really heard of planning or strategy um, and again I had a bit of a lucky break because somebody in the interview process sort of uh, sort of advised me I don't think you'll be as good at that as you would be at this other job um, called strategy. Um, and I just sort of took their advice, really. I mean, presumably they, they would know better than me. And I'm so glad they, so glad they steered me in that <laughs> direction. I'd be like the world's worst um, account person. I can't believe I even thought I'd be able to do that. I'm not, I'm not organized enough to, um, to make that sort of uh, thing work. So, uh, yeah, so I've been a, I've been a sort of a planner or a strategist right from day one. So, so know you have no formal, formal training, training in that. You just, just sort of went, went in and they said, mean, I, I think this more suits you. you and then you, then you sort, sort of, of yeah. like just learned, just learned as you went. As you went. Yeah, yeah, basically, and it was because it was it was quite handy. I mean, there's, I think, the advantages of starting either small or big agencies. You just have to. My advice to anyone is just get get your foot in the door, get the opportunity, and then make the most of it. You know, if you if you end up in a small place, then there's advantages because you're you know you're probably working closer to the senior management and the founders, and you you're expected to be a bit more autonomous probably, and you you just have to get on with things without formal structure. So that can be really good for some people. Um, or if you find yourself in a big agency, you know, you have probably have a bit more of a structured sort of training. And I, 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 I've made, um, I, I had a very good sort of uh, traineeship, if you like, and um, a, a really fantastic mentor called Mia Kennedy, who really sort of put a load of time in to sort of um, uh, make sure that I was, uh, you know, properly learning the ropes. Um, so I've always like, really appreciated that. Do you have, Do a, you have a preference then, big, big agencies, agencies or, or small, or small agencies? agencies? I think people should try them out at different uh, stages in their career. Um, as I say, I, I feel like, uh, unless you're sort of incredibly fortunate to have a huge range of choices when, you, when you're when you first starting out, I think most people should really take, take the, um, you know, they might have just a couple of opportunities if they're lucky or probably more likely um, you know, one really good opportunity and, and just take it and you'll you'll learn loads from it in your first job because you haven't done it before. So anything's going to be new. Um, but then I think it is worth, if you start off at a big agency, it's probably useful to to then work next at a smaller one um, uh, and vice versa, because they are very different experiences. And I think you, you know, different people are very much suited, uh, better suited to different agencies. And I, I certainly found that, you know, over the years, having tried a couple of um, bigger ones and a couple of smaller ones you know that I, I very much found that I, I prefer a smaller sort of more entrepreneurial uh, sort of culture um, but you know but lots of people really thrive in a much bigger sort of um, structured sort of uh, setup so I'm not sort of knocking that either.
0: Yeah just sort of uh, depending on the person I guess is sort of the the the, the sort of yeah the it's a bit, a bit of a hedging answer but it's also true like it depends on what type of personality you are and how you get on with
1: people and structure. structure. And... I think, you know, there's, there's sometimes people, you know, I've probably been guilty of it myself sometimes because you reflect your own sort of prejudice. If you, you know, sometimes the sort of um, narrative becomes that bigger agencies are bad and small agencies are somehow more funky and cool and creative mm-hmm. and entrepreneurial. And, and obviously as somebody who's sort of set up a, a relatively smaller one. I I might sort of be inclined to you know see some truth in that, but but the the real truth is is there's you know really good big agencies and there's really terrible small ones as well. So, um, you know you you have to see past those stereotypes a little bit yourself. So it's a partly about what you are good at and what you're sort of where your instincts take you. Um, and then it's also just making sure that uh the agency is good and not making the size into something that it. Um, you know that, that it might
0: not necessarily be yeah absolutely um, just on what you said my history of advertising might be might be wrong here I'm not very well versed but it feels from my understanding anyway it seems like strategy and planning uh, seems to be more of a sort of modern thing like um, emerging like the last I don't know 20 30 years or whatever would you you know how, how what was the sort of strategy and planning landscape was there much um, sort of um, appetite for that when you first started or was it quite a small um part of the agency?
1: Yeah, it, it was uh, I mean so basically the the history of planning, not to be um the, the old boring fart that'll tell you how it no, started. No, would I'd <laughs> love, to, <laughs> love to learn the history. it's basically started off I mean it, was really quite, well, I think it literally sort of it's it's a lot of it's 50th anniversary you it's a it's a year or two a so planning started a in the 19, late 1960s at two Thank agencies you. in London Um, JWT and um, BNP, and neither of them really exist now. They've gone through lots of different changes, so they're sort of called various other things now, but they they started out as a bit of an experiment. Until then, really, um, you know, creatives and account people had uh, had done the strategy. Uh, And then these two agencies sort of realized it's actually quite helpful having someone who is solely charged with the strategy so they don't have to worry about what the client thinks in terms of um, you know that's that's the thing that you know account people have got to be you know mindful of, mm-hmm. and they didn't necessarily have to be you know defending the work um, or pursuing you know a creative a- agenda that 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 didn't work, um, which might be a temptation for some creative people to do you know just we want to do this regardless of whether consumers like it or not. And obviously that's massively stereotypical and really the best people, you know, the best creative people I've always found are brilliant strategists and the best account people as well are brilliant strategists. So I'm, I'm sort of slightly exaggerating the point, but that's that's why they came up with this sort of new uh, role. And it was often called, and again, this is a bit oversimplifying, but they, they sort of call planners the, the voice of the consumer. So, so that was the idea. These new people would represent the voice of the consumer and make sure that the work was actually going to work um, and be sort of populist and, you know, not be developed in a bubble and all the rest of it. And um, and so it sort of slowly took off around agencies in London um, for the next sort of 20 odd years. So by the time I'd sort of joined in, I think my I first started in advertising in 1993, which I realised now sounds ridiculously long ago, um, but the, it was pretty well established in all the Main agencies in the UK. It was a bit new in the US. And so I did a couple of years uh, over here, and then I went to the States um, uh, for a couple of years uh, where it was a little bit more unusual. And a lot of the people who were doing planning and strategy in the States back then, and still to a degree now, um, were British, you know, because they were sort of imported over. Um, uh, But, you know, now it's really well established pretty much everywhere in the world and um periodically people sort of wonder should we go back to the old days where we don't need you know specialist strategists but um whenever somebody tries to do that usually they you know after about six months they give up and come back to getting people that (laughs) Mm um are sort of experts in that particular
0: well that, that was a a great brief history of of planning and strategy um yeah thank you for thank you for that um, so onto your book, um, what inspired you to to write a book?
1: Well, um, so I've got this book called Go Luck Yourself. And the, I mean, I, the reason I wrote it really was I, I started becoming very interested in the idea of luck over the last mm-hmm. year, because obviously we've all been through this horrible experience of bad luck through the pandemic. Um, yeah. So I'm like a lot of you probably sitting at home thinking how unlucky I am. And then I sort of thought, well, yeah, I'm unlucky on that particular issue, like everybody is. But I'm I'm probably a lot luckier than a lot of people because, you know, I'm an older, straight white man, um. So I'm I'm you know with money and all the rest of it, relatively speaking, and I'm sort of, just much more insulated from the effects of it than a lot of other people in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and also you know you start becoming conscious of all these other aspects of luck, like you know Black Lives Matter or Me Too you know, where the idea of privilege becomes quite a big sort of deal. So I, I started finding out a lot about, you know, what does it mean to be lucky or privileged or fortunate and all these sort of things. And uh, and then I thought, sort of really, God, this is embarrassing. I've got a company called Lucky Generals and um, I don't know anything about this. So the more I researched, the more interesting it got and the more I thought, you know, it's ridiculous that none of us speak about luck. You know, it's a real taboo in Western <clears throat> culture. And I thought I'd write a book about why that might be the case and, and how can we sort of... Um, change that.
0: So how do you how define do you luck, luck now? now?
1: Well, I think there's a couple of different sorts of luck. I think there's the sort of luck that you, you you might call it inherited luck. So it's almost like the cards that you're given mm-hmm. um, in life. And, you know, that, um, this is where I get a bit cross when people say there's no such thing as luck. Well, obviously there's, there absolutely is, because um, somebody who's born into very sort of affluent, um, you know, family in the West is gonna have, you know, start off life with just a lot better luck than someday um, perhaps in another part of the world without those advantages. So it, it's just not true to say there's no such thing as luck. People are born with luck and companies are born with luck as well You know, an organization. Some organizations start off um, in lucky circumstances or have certain advantages that can only really be described as luck. Um, but then the, the other type of luck is the sort of luck that you can influence yourself and you can make your own luck. So if I go back to that sort of cards example, you can't, I can't do anything about the cards I get given, but um, I can play them in the best possible way. And I think that's the interesting thing in life or um, you know, in business and really what the book is about is how can you play the cards that you're given um, better and how can you sort of stack the odds in your favour? Um, because I think there's an awful lot that we can do there Um, by being mindful of it uh, to sort of increase our chances of succeeding. So can we
0: practice practice being Being the ways ways to, how do we increase increase our luck?
1: luck? Definitely, definitely. And there's been lots of books written about how individuals can practice their luck. Um, And what I've tried to do is take some of that learning and apply it to organisations. But what we can all do is things like, you know, just a really simple thing is to appreciate how uh, lucky you are so there's a load of research from psychology now that shows that if we just take a little moment to, uh, as I suppose I was, I've been saying I, I did last year, in the middle of all this bad luck, I sort of sat down and thought about all the good things that I, I had going on. And, you know, it was, it was a really helpful way to not let me get, you know, down about, um, you know, how crappy the sort of state of the world was. Um, and I think that applies to people and it applies to organisations. I think the best organisations are the ones that, are really conscious of how lucky they are and don't just take it all for granted you know because when an organization starts taking its luck for granted then it, they become complacent and that's how they all sort of unravel um so just practicing gratitude and being mindful of it um uh you know so many of the great discoveries and so many of the great you know brand campaigns and marketing efforts are by somebody appreciating what the company has got what's sitting right under their nose and then just taking advantage of it
0: it's almost uh boring a bit from sort of stoic philosophy which is like the you know being grateful for appreciating what you have rather than um you know wishing you had what you didn't and it's like um you know when you're in you know when you're looking on instagram or whatever for example for a personal example you know, you could have like a 9 out of 10 life and you're looking at all these people showing off their 10 out of 10 lives and you're, you know, ruin the fact that you're missing that one. Um, but, you know, if, if you go ask somebody in a hospital or, you know, somebody that's had, you know, COVID, for example, and that's even just, and even still, you know, you could say there's less lucky people, you know, than to be, but, you know, for the example, um, you know, all they want is health. Like they don't want, they don't care about, You know anything else they've got like a one life and they're you know they're missing the nine but because you're so people get so focused on the the things they don't have rather than you know the nine out of ten they do have um they just totally miss the point
1: that's exactly it and so if you apply that sort of thinking to businesses and brands you know quite often what you find is um you know a lot of the time we speak to clients when they they're in a bit of a pickle because they're sort of the reason they've come to us is obviously because they've got a problem or a challenge they want to address through advertising or through marketing and, and very often the conversation involves us just finding out a little bit more about what they've got and and a lot of the time they've got some really amazing stuff that they just haven't realized they because they're almost so familiar with it you know they might have an amazing history but they don't want to talk about it because that feels a bit old-fashioned Mm -hmm. Um, but actually a lot of the time finding out about the history of a company can be the thing that helps you unlock what they should do in future so they might they might have a great history they might come from an amazing place that they just don't realize how fantastic it is and how the rest of the world would like to find out about this place they might have loads of data that they just haven't really appreciated how special the data is Um, they might have an amazing name they might have an amazing brand character you know that's they're a bit embarrassed by because they think that you know old logos and old sort of mascots and people like that are are not they're a bit old-fashioned but but actually you can do some amazing things with um things like that so a lot of the time these assets are almost like just sitting in the company it's almost like up in the attic and you need Mm -hmm. to just go up into the attic and bring them down and blow a bit of dust off them um and and that can be a really powerful thing that we can do yeah Yeah, sort of spotting the the advantages advantages that
0: that they already already have have built in they're just not taking advantage of i guess
1: yeah that's right because we're we we just don't the more familiar we are with something the more we don't think about it like we don't think about our own names or the places (laughs) that we were from or anything like that Uh, and sometimes somebody else might say wow that's you should do something with that that's incredible
0: yeah um it's I don't know what the the modern trend is. I don't know what you feel about this the modern trend of everyone having to do a new logo or a new name, you know, Burger King changed their whole uh thing and then there was the uh the very interesting announcement from Aberdeen the new uh that which I mean went down. I I don't I understand how someone in the company didn't didn't foresee you know all the jokes and jives about uh that rebranding. Why why do you think companies, you know, have this compulsion to you know update and be seen as I mean I think Aberdeen or I'm pronouncing it Aberdeen because it's so comically uh, bad the name I think they said like the new name is going to make them you know digitally active and agile and all these sort of words that I mean I don't think a name makes you digitally active or anything you know why, why do companies have this compulsion to update their image?
1: I think it's because of um The desire to—it's often a new broom, you know. Marketing directors change, or CMOs, chief marketing officers, change jobs every, you know, two or three years, and they want to make a mark. They want to do things differently. um, It's—it becomes boring, you know. Again, people are are more bored of their own stuff than the outside world is. Mm -hmm. You know, um, if you see a logo, you know, a hundred times a day, or if you watch your own adverts, you know, dozens of times a day you know, then you have a very warped sense of the world. You know, other people have maybe seen the advert once if they're lucky and, you know, only get glances at the at the logo as well. So they're not bored of it, but companies get bored of their own stuff a lot sooner than consumers. Um, and there's this desire to look new and to patch things up. And you hit it right on the head there with your comment that a name doesn't somehow make you agile. You you know, people, people have a... a, a a sort of a really warped relationship with names because it's the name the name reflects what sort of company you are. If you're incredibly agile, then that name will become known for agility, not the other way around mm-hmm. And that's yeah. one of the yeah. things I say in the book is that, you know, if you look at, you know, let's take um Facebook and MySpace. Uh MySpace is a miles better name. I mean it's sort of yeah. it's yeah. sort of uh A lovely sort of evocative sense of having my space in the world and it's it's about me personally and it explains sort of what it is facebook doesn't make any sense it's sort of (laughs) it's like a i mean i think it originally came from college yearbooks didn't it but
0: yeah i think that 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 was the because the original idea was like it was um like rating people's uh faces i think which is and then the fact they don't they've not changed it from what's pretty questionable kind of i mean not that they're not the they're you know the height of a, a moral company nowadays but in a very different way but yeah it, you're right MySpace is a much better name
1: so but that just kind of shows how the name you know a good name you know can um can't compensate for you know you having a uh you know not such good product and there's so many examples of that you know again if you look at google um as opposed to Ask Jeeves, which I don't know if that even still exists now, but that was an early sort of uh, search engine that had a great name and had a little button.
0: Yeah. They've, they've dropped Jeeves to just ask now, I think, which was,
1: which was the best bit. Jeeves was Jeeves was the, <laughs> he was the USB. And it kind of told you what you do. Like Google's just like some faceless, you know, is a technical word for a long number, isn't it? But, um, you know, they've obviously, uh, overcome that and now we think that Google's a great name because it's, you know, uh, they've they've grown into the brand name and there's just tons of them. So um, really what I always sort of feel clients need to do is sort out the bit, you know, make sure that the product and the brand and the company is doing the right thing. Then the name becomes a little bit less important or it can be like a really good asset to, um, you know, uh, to make more of uh, once it is, once there's some substance behind it, I guess. Yeah. Um,
0: the point about um the the brand leads the name rather than the name leads the brand or the company, um, is like yeah, that's a really good point, and yeah, I don't know, people seem to people seem to be missing that and trying to trying to shortcut it by just going straight to a cool name, cool name
1: it's, a, that... it's a shortcut, isn't it? You're exactly right. Again, that's a sort of a it's, it's it's quicker and easier to chop a few vowels out um <laughs> than than to actually um you know, go through all the uh, systems. I mean, having said that, I, I should sort of say that one one of the interesting things about design is sometimes things, you know, t- take a while to bed in. And so, um, you know, if they, if they do genuinely do all sorts of other interesting stuff, then we might all be, if they live up to, you know, the desire to be agile and all the rest of it, then we'll all be sitting there saying this is a genius case study in a couple of years time, but they need to just back it up with some action, I think.
0: Yeah. I mean, yeah,
1: yeah. Absolutely. Um. So,
0: why don't you give me uh one of your your favorite stories or discoveries um
1: when you were writing the book and doing the research for the book? Um. Well. Uh. There's lots of what occurred to me is that there's lots of the biggest discoveries, in the worlds of you know things like science or literature or, um, music or you know sport. Lots of big events and you know major moments have been formed by luck, but the same is true of advertising or brands as well. So to to think of a couple of examples, um, uh, many years ago, the great creative John Hegarty was walking through a factory, an Audi factory in Germany. And on the wall, there was a poster that said Vorsprung durch Technik, um, which he asked what it meant. I mean, people must have been walking past that factory poster, you know, hundreds and thousands of times before, Mm -hmm. nobody ever Mm -hmm. bothered about it. Um, And he found out that it was, you know, uh, progress through technology. And then what was brilliant was that he then, he seized that opportunity and realised that that, "Mm, that's interesting. But in particular, he didn't translate it, which is like incredibly Grave, You know, he just ran that because he realised that it sounded even more cool and technical and sort of Teutonic (laughs) and sort of clever um, to run the line in a in a foreign language. And, you know, they've been running that line for about whatever it is, 40, 50 years, which is amazing. And I think that's, you know, that that is a great example of the luck is in that company. The writing is literally on the wall. Um, <laughs> and he's he's been, but everyone's missed it. You know, thousands of people have walked past that and not thought anything of it. And he's, sometimes you need these fresh eyes to spot the opportunity. Um, so I like that one. And then the other um, one that I really liked was um there's a there's somebody sort of walking through the forest with his dog in switzerland and uh got the dog back to the house and the dog was covered in burrs you know sort of um seeds and they were all stuck to his fur and this guy was like an engineer and so he you know combed it all out took him ages and then he he thought he'd put them under his microscope just to see why they were so sticky and he could see that there was all these sort of little uh, hooks and fasteners you know where the i suppose the seeds had evolved so that they would stick on the bird's feathers and stuff like that and get spread yeah. about yeah. anyway he, the point was that he again realized that that was an opportunity and he after about 10 years working on it came up with velcro um which wow, uh, wow. is a sort of a lovely you know which is obviously now found in everything and is yeah. an enormous sort of commercial success and uh, what that comes from so if that's more about sort of Seeing that there's opportunities everywhere, you know that are that that in that case it's from nature, and and it's such a truism, but I think you know, uh, it is accurate that often you know walk around the block, you know looking into the, up at the sky or just thinking about what nature's doing can be really helpful to the creative process, and um, but the same is true, with, you know, so many great ideas that've been sport inspired by sport or art or religion or you know music or any of those other things as well. And, I think that's a good reminder of us. You know, the answer is not always, um, you know, sitting in front of us in a on a spreadsheet. You know.
0: Yeah, I think that's one of the things that makes like advertising and creativity um, so interesting. Is that it's not it cannot be formulaic at all. Like as you said, these ideas wouldn't have existed had the you know had those events. You know, had he not walked around the the, the factory, he wouldn't have seen the sign the the line doesn't come out of that and so on and it's it's just it's sort of yeah it's just a, an interesting sort of field because there's no like set way to just get through the work like sometimes things come from the weirdest places and you can't control them it's just i guess part of it and this is you know i guess you know a way of increasing luck is like just increasing like your surface area for inputs and that's how you can stumble across weird things like a uh, little velcro seed plants sticking to your dog I love to love that story I think that's so 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 cool
1: thanks well, that, that's, that's I like that surface thing I hadn't really thought about that but that's exactly what it is it's, it's, it's statistics really it's sort of if you could increase your chances of striking it lucky by increasing the number of stimuli you know in your life you know so that if you're surrounded by all those things music sport religion politics um, fashion uh, pop culture all the rest of it you're, uh, you're probably going to strike it lucky more often. And you can sort of artificially increase it. I mean, I think, again, one of the things I got interested in the book was artists of various sorts, and perhaps people in marketing too, who have sort of deliberately um, sort of gamed the system to find, you know, to give themselves more surface area, to to use your expression. So for instance, David Bowie used to um, get newspapers and cut them into bits and throw the pieces in the air and um, then spot the, you know, unusual combinations of words that were created. Mm. So it was a sort of artificial, you know, creation of unusual ideas. You know, and he'd, he'd find the word diamond and the word dog beside it and, you know, comes up with an album called Diamond Dogs because that sounds quite cool. Um, <laughs> and Tom Waits, if you're familiar with him, the sort of uh, blues uh, musician, he, he has two radios playing at the same time um, uh, and that's how he works. And then he, he looks out for a really unusual combinations of notes that shouldn't go wow, together wow. or like two genres at the same time um because on different stations or that lyric and this lyric don't make sense but that's what i like about them and i feel like that you know that that's another example of he's artificially created these lucky accidents happy accidents um so yeah. means he's not just waiting for them to happen he's actually going out to try and make them happen deliberately
0: yeah that, i mean I, I can imagine that's you know pretty tough to listen to at times two different radio stations playing two different genres of music but i i love the uh, the example um of yeah as you said it's like intentionally it's like looking for luck almost which sounds sort of counterintuitive because you know most people understand luck to be by its nature you know just something that happens but i totally agree um with your point that like you can influence it you can as I said, the, the service area, you you can increase your chances of being lucky. You you know you're not you guaranteeing success, but you're improving improving your odds. your
1: odds. Definitely. Definitely. You know, um look at one of the other big debates of this year about one of the big sort of things that we're all talking about, diversity. And mostly we're talking about it quite rightly for the sort of ethical reasons that we need more um diverse teams because that is the the right thing to do. Um, but also it's just like a basic commercial truth that you'll you'll massively increase your chances of doing something more interesting um by having people from different experiences because that is the equivalent of of having two radios switched on at the same time
0: yeah 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 Yeah, uh, sorry sorry no no no, no. if if
1: we're all listening at the same same radio on the same frequency with the same music we're all going to come up with the same idea but if we've got different you know sources hitting our antennae then we're gonna create more interesting stuff
0: yeah, I think a lot of creativity just comes from uh combining things that we don't typically expect to or think about normally, and that's where some of the best ideas come from. And um, was there anything that you initially wrote in the book that you had to take out that you you wish you could have I mean, I, I imagine it wasn't, you know, written to the word count submit perfect, but like was there anything that um that hurt you to take out that you wish you could have kept in but it didn't make didn't make the cut?
1: Do you know what? I don't think there was any sort of big uh things like that that I was uh desperate about you know um uh it's a good it's a good question maybe I should go back and i've maybe I've just reinvented that in my mind and it all worked sort of a bit more smoothly than it really did but uh no I think I managed to get all the things in there um that I wanted um and um because i th- I feel like luck's quite a sort of a a fluid theme, it sort of allowed me to cover a whole bunch of stuff, so there's for instance, there's a whole bunch of things that I really wanted to get in that were technically bad luck, so you, you could sort of say, well, they don't belong in a book about good luck but but actually then I sort of thought, no, there's a whole sort of a whole discipline whereby you can improve your luck by turning bad luck into good luck. That is an actual form of that's again something you can practice like every time you come up against something that looks on the surface to be a bad thing creatively, like, oh, I've not got enough time, I've not got enough money, um, you know the budget's been cut, or uh, that nobody wants to talk about this product because it's um, there's a taboo about it, or th- there's a sort of a flaw in the product, um, or something negative, or people are complaining about it. All those things look like they're bad things, but actually uh, some of the best campaigns in history have been taking a negative, something that looks like it's bad luck, and reframing it so it looks like it's good luck. Um, yeah,
0: I'm, I'm sure you're aware of the the Prattful effect. Um, Some my favourite campaigns, like um, you know the Guinness, "Good things come to those who wait." Um, you had the Hertz, which is like we're number two, so we work harder. Or the you know our, we're number two, so work you shorter. Like all these things, where it's like very clever, just you know, just twisting it, flipping it on its head. Um, and making that negative into a positive, um, some gets often some of the best stuff. The best stuff,
1: yeah, it's, it's confidence, isn't it? We we like as human beings, some if somebody can admit to a little flaw, we we like them a lot more. Which, as you say, it's the pratfall effect. Um, you know, we did a, a campaign for Amazon. Um, we've done a lot of advertising for them, and including work at the Super Bowl. And we, you know, one of the um, uh, campaigns that we created, which which actually became the sort of, uh, it was voted the, the American public's favourite ad of the Super Bowl, um, was about Alexa not working. Uh, it, was, it was a sort of a little conceit that Alexa had lost her voice and how would we um, cope without her and we had all these celebrities sort of doing Alexa's job but not very well. And at the end, you know, she recovered her voice and we, you know, we all lived happily ever after. But and on the one hand, that was like quite a brave thing to do because it's like such a you know it's the biggest moment in the world advertising calendar. It's like the biggest stage, the most expensive airtime, and all the rest of it. Um, so to sort of spend all that money and all that time showing your product not quite working in the way that you'd expect it to um, was pretty brave. But it just shows great confidence, really, because actually what you're saying is yeah, this never happens. You know, Alexa always works and is always dependable and brilliant. Um, and we've got the confidence to take the mickey out of ourselves a little bit. Um, and you can only do that if you really, really know that your product is brilliant.
0: Yeah, absolutely. That's a great point. Yeah, like if you were worried at all about how your product comes across or how effective it is, then you wouldn't Yeah, have the confidence to do these sorts of adverts. So that in of itself shows like, you know, the confidence that the, the brand has in in the
1: product. Exactly, and funnily enough, actually, although I've sort of said that nobody talks about luck, and it is a bit of a taboo, so I found that only two percent of business textbooks, for instance, talk about luck. Um, but the the two percent of people that do talk about it are the very most successful people on the planet. Um, so if you're a Bill Gates or a you know Jeff Bezos or a you know Zuckerberg or um, you know one of these guys, Branson, you, you know all of them have talked about luck being. Really important in their lives, you know, because they they you know feel that they have to acknowledge it, uh, and also they've they've got the confidence, you know, that they n- nobody's going to sort of turn around and go, oh, well, they were just lucky because because actually it's sort of uh, you know it's it's um, it, we admire people more when they're sort of uh, they're admittedly extremely uh, successful, but if they're you know it's probably the least that they owe us is to sort of uh, acknowledge that they had a little bit of luck along the way. You know, if they just say that it's all down to them, then we're probably not going to like them. Um, and and what what's interesting is that the rest of us, as we sort of strive up the ladder of success, we're probably a lot less likely to say that we've been lucky because we feel that that's sort of yeah. undermining yeah. ourselves a little bit. But when you, when you get to up to the very sort of highest sort of echelons, people finally admit, yeah, no, I did get a lot of luck on the way.
0: Yeah, do you think that's why there's this aversion to admitting luck? Is it like almost like oh well i have not you know people don't want to come off um to say to others like oh i didn't really deserve or not deserve but didn't fully earn my success i actually just got lucky or is it because you know if you're trying to climb as you said it's not you know the advice you want to hear is not oh well just you know keep trying and hopefully you know something will turn out because it's not you know what i mean it's not very concrete advice do you think that these sorts of reasons are why we sort of stay away from from, uh, talking uh, about it.
1: it. Yes I think it's sort of it's been this in the book as I've talked about this um, it's really a Victorian sort of uh, attitude that this this all happened in Victorian times where up until then we'd all been very happy talking about luck and then they took a major sort of downer on it because it sort of um, interfered with their beliefs about the industrial revolution and the Protestant work ethic where everyone's got to just work harder and harder and harder and if you've if you've succeeded and if you're rich that means that it's it's because you've uh, worked really hard and so sort of God has smiled on you and if you're um if you haven't um uh if you're not wealthy if you're poor it's because you haven't worked hard enough um and I think it goes back to that sort of uh, assumption that that luck is the opposite of hard work I think you can believe in both like I mean I like to think I've worked pretty hard and um you know lots of people have to work really hard these days um but I still think. You have to leave room for luck. So I think it's when I say that I'm lucky or someone else is lucky, I'm not saying that they're you know, that they didn't deserve it or that they because I still think there's a real um you know, brilliance and creativity required to take the chances that you're gonna mm-hmm. So that you know, that Velcro story we talked about before, so that's a good example, isn't it? Because that that was he was lucky. This guy, George DeMestrel, who's the guy who had the dog, was very lucky to make that discovery. But so it was a lucky uh anecdote i guess you know but um he had to you know i, I would have just combed the dog's hair and got you know yeah, yeah 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 got on with it but he had the wherewithal to realize oh this is quite interesting and then spend the next 10 years working really hard on a solution and then commercializing it and making his fortune so you can have both luck and then um you know talent and hard work and imagination um so some people would say that luck in answer to one of your questions before and these aren't my words but um quite a lot of philosophers and people like that have said that luck is where opportunity meets a prepared mind, which mm-hmm. I quite like, you know, you yeah. you yeah. got, got to be able to jump on the opportunity.
0: Yeah, because, you know, if that had, as you said, if that happened to you or if that happened to me, like, so he had to, one, have it happen to him, which was fortunate. Two, had to, you know, as you said, he was an engineer. So he had that, you know, he had to then take it upon himself to look at it under the microscope and notice it. And then three, you know, there's so, I'm sure there's so many good ideas for companies or products or things that never make it because, you know, bad luck or, you know, they don't execute it quite the right way or they hit the market at the wrong time, you know, just because, yeah, l- luck doesn't mean, you know, lack of talent or undeserved success because there's there's so much more that it takes than just luck.
1: Exactly. If you look at, you know, that I mean, from science, you know, the most famous example of all is probably um, Alexander Fleming, wasn't it? And his old uh, Petri dish on there. Yeah. Yeah, you know, on the windowsill that was gathering fungi and bacteria and all the rest of it. And, you know, again, I would have just chucked that out. It'd be disgusting. <laughs> like, oh my god, what the hell is this on my petri dish? But um, he obviously realised the potential, you know, uh, significance of it. And, and nobody in science looks back and says, "Well, Alexander Fleming was a bit lucky." Mm. You know, they don't. People mm. don't sort of um, berate him as being a bit jammy. They yeah. realise that no, it was yeah. a moment of serendipity. But he was brilliant to be able to spotted significance and I think that's that's where the cleverness and again that John Hegarty story I told you about there he spotted it on the factory wall Mm. but then so that was lucky that he was passing at that moment but he seized the opportunity and that's what we can train ourselves to do we can't you know we can increase our chances of being in those lucky situations more often and then we can also increase our chances of spotting the opportunities and doing something
0: yeah I think that's um yeah Brilliantly, brilliantly put. Um, okay, let's finish up. Um, can I get your top three book recommendations uh, in the obviously uh, the advertising sphere?
1: Well, um, there's a great book called The Choice Factory. Yeah, Richard um, Shotton. Yeah, Richard Shotton. Richard yeah, exactly. Which I think is a really simple and easy way into uh, behavioral economics. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. What else am I, have I been reading recently? There's uh, Brand Splaining is a new book that is out by uh, Jane Cunningham, uh, which is all about sort of the sexism that's still present in marking. Um, and then there's a um, anything by Adam Morgan. I think is always brilliant. Um, so whether that's Eat Big Fish or The Pirate Inside, but he's got he had one a couple of years ago called A Beautiful Constraint, and it was about something we've sort of touched on, which is about how sometimes restrictions and limits can be uh can help you be more creative and interesting so that's three goodies for um for starters
0: yeah i've read the choice factory uh cover to cover like three or four times it's absolutely brilliant um but yeah i'll definitely get uh sink my teeth into the other two and of course go luck yourself which is out on the 8th of June. june
1: That's right, 8th of June, and I should also say that all the royalties are going to um, an organisation called Commercial Break, which is about, uh, helps working class kids get a, a lucky break in our industry.
0: Yeah, that's a really good, um, a really good enterprise. Um, they do some, some really good stuff, uh, which is another thing, as you said, about the diversity, diversity of um, background and income and, and thought in that regard is also uh, definitely important.
1: Definitely, yeah. So, yeah, thank you very much. No, thank you very much for for coming on. It's been
0: an absolute absolute pleasure. pleasure.
1: Good stuff. Okay, well, good luck, everyone.
0: (laughs) Cheers. Cheers. Thanks.